remain standing and turn to our second scripture reading and our sermon passage this morning from Hebrews. We're going to start reading this, this morning in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Hebrews 5, 7. And we'll be reading up through chapter 6, verse 12. Our sermon text is actually going to be chapter 5, verse 11 through 6, verse 12. But to give us just a little bit of additional context, we're going to start reading in chapter 5, verse 7. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, that is on page 1190. The book of Hebrews, chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. And now let us seek the Lord's illumination on his word. Let us pray. Holy Spirit of our God, thank you for breathing out the words of Scripture. Thank you for gathering each and every one of us here this morning to hear your word read and proclaimed. Our God, it is no accident. There are no accidents in your plan. And so it is your deliberate plan from all eternity past that every soul sitting in this room today and the one standing here were intentionally gathered by you 
so that we could read and consider these words together. And we ask that we would take that seriously, even as we seriously stood at attention to hear your word read. So we pray that we would seriously now sit with illumination as we hear your word proclaimed. Please open our hearts wide, press your word in deep, that we may be transformed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, some of the decisions that we make in life, even when they seem important, are actually quite trivial. Your favorite baseball team, your favorite football team, it may be very important to you, but in the end result, on the scale of eternity, it's relatively trivial. I know that may be hard for some of you to believe, but it is true. It can be hard even for me. But then there are other decisions, other decisions which may seem trivial at the time, but actually turn out to be great tipping points in the history and in your life. They become great decision points from which there is no going back. About a dozen years ago now, maybe a little bit longer, uh, former President George W. Bush wrote a memoir after he left office. And whatever you think of President Bush's politics, that's, that's not the point here this morning, but the title of his memoir was called Decision Points. And he used that idea of these sort of key moments where decisions take you in a definite direction. He used that not only as a title, but as a, a model for the whole book. And so he framed the narrative of his life, his memoir, in terms of these key decision points or tipping points. Points that, decisions that, that lock you in, that set you on an irreversible path. And the interesting thing about these, friends, is that you don't always recognize them at the moment. It's often only in retrospect that you realize, wow, that was a decisive moment. I remember in 2007, 2008, when I was uh, warmly ensconced in my chair as a software engineer with a company that I enjoyed working for, and we had the opportunity to go to seminary. You know, at the time, you think, well, I think this is a good idea. I think this is God's call. But, you know, if it doesn't work out, I can always just come back. Well, here I am. <laughs> you know, whether you realize it or not, some decisions really do set you on an irrevocable path. There are those tipping points, not just in our lives, but even in history. Those of you who have studied the history of the Roman Republic and its transformation into the Roman Empire, you've probably heard the phrase, crossing the Rubicon. How many of you have heard that phrase? It's that idea of an irrevocable step beyond which there is no turning back. And even we talk about in our own lives sometimes, there's no going back from this. Am I sure I want to do this? There's no going back. The question that this passage in Hebrews is putting before us this morning is, what if there is that same possibility in each and every one of our souls? At the deepest core, the deepest level of who you are, what if, what if there are such things as spiritual tipping points, tipping points of the soul? Decisions that, for better or for ill, lock you in, and there is no going back. That's what's going on in this passage. Now, you see, where are we in the bigger flow of the book? In the book of Hebrews, in this section that we've just entered into in the last few weeks, the writer is working, he's got, he has this extended argument, really, from chapter 4 to chapter 10, about how Jesus is better than all of the Old Testament priestly system put together. But he, he, he wants to talk about, specifically, he says in verse 10 of chapter 5, he really wants to get into how Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, but he can't get into that right away. 
He says, I can't do that because there's this pastoral issue, which he starts launching into in verse 11. You've become dull of hearing. And then in the context of that, he's, he wants to address this dullness of their hearing. He brings to us one of the Bible's most sobering warning passages. Isn't it one of the most sobering passages in all of the Bible? You read it and you're thinking like, whoa. And maybe you might be tempted to think, well, surely the Greek gives me an escape hatch. No. No. These words that he uses about being enlightened and, t- and tasting, and the, these are the same words that are used in other passages to talk about legitimate Christian experience. And so there's no easy escape hatch here. So what do we do? How do we square this with the promises of, of God keeping us? Uh, even that, that assurance of pardon that I'll never cast out those who come to me. How do we, how do we put this together? Well, friends, we're going to do this morning what we should always do when we come across a difficult passage of Scripture, and that is two basic things. Number one, we're going to pay close attention to the context, and number two, we're going to start with what we know to be clear and then go from there to what is less clear. I want to give you just, though, the heads up that the big idea here is that there are tipping points for your souls and that it is possible to tip your soul away from God in such a way that you will never desire to repent. That's that's the big message here, but it's cast in this sense of real pastoral concern for the church. And that's where we want to start. We want to start with just by recognizing and exploring the pastoral honesty of the writer to the Hebrews. Kids, if you've got your outlines, this is where we're going to go first. One thing that we should observe right off the top is just how much this writer cares for the people he's writing to. He, he loves them so much He's wanting to be very honest. And in fact, number one on your outlines, this is maybe going to surprise us. Because he loves them, he twice calls them sluggish. Twice he calls them sluggish. Now, how do we know he's saying this in love? Verse 9, he says, yet in your case, beloved. That's not a trivial inclusion because this is the only time in the book of Hebrews that he addresses his, uh, his readers as beloved. He's, he's making a point to affirm his love for them, even as he is saying really hard things to them. And you see the first instance of the word sluggish, actually it's in chapter 5, verse 11. And you can't see this in the ESV, unfortunately. But when it says, about this we have much to say, verse 11, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. The word dull there is the same Greek word that he uses in chapter 6, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish. And so that idea, his concern that they no longer be sluggish, frames the whole section. That's why we're dealing with such a large chunk, because it's all connected. There is this significant pastoral concern on the part of the writer that they no longer be sluggish. And it's not because they lack, he's not saying they're sluggish because they're, they're not intelligent. It's not a lack of intelligence. It's rather spiritual laziness. He goes on to say, and we know, he says, you ought to be teachers by this time, verse 12, but instead you need someone to teach you again the basic principles. You're living on milk. So the issue is not one of mental capacity. It is one of moral, moral slacking off. We should note just first and foremost how important it is to pay attention to the state of our souls. 
How many of you have ever asked in a pastoral visit or, or a, a conversation with one of your elders, pastor, elder, would you please tell me the number one obstacle you see in my life to my spiritual growth? Have you ever asked that question? Maybe afraid to ask? I've been a pastor for almost 12 years. Nobody's ever asked me that question. It's a hard question to ask. But the writer here loves his audience so much that he says, I'm going to confront it. Not because I want to make them feel bad, but because I want, to, I want to wound them faithfully. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I want to bring them out of this dangerous, dangerous spot that they are in. And so he goes on to tell them, number two, kids, that instead of growing in their capacity as disciples of Jesus, they are stuck in infancy. He says, you ought to be teachers, but instead... You're living on milk. What is he saying here? He's not saying that everybody should be a pastor. What he is saying is that all Christians, as they go on in the Christian life, should develop a sort of basic capacity to be able to explain to their own hearts and to others the basics of the faith. You shouldn't, for, for certain things, as you grow in Christ, certain things should become clear enough that you don't have to ask the pastor, you don't have to ask the elder, that you with your Bible can find the answers and share them with others. And what are those basic principles that all Christians should be able to explain? Well, thankfully, very helpfully list them for us at the beginning of chapter 6. The basic foundation of repentance from dead works. The basic foundation of faith toward God in Christ. The basic, the basic teaching about instruction about washings, and literally the Greek word there is baptism. So the significance of baptism and how it's not just, just some kind of weird ritual, that, but what it really means. The laying on of hands, which is a very rich image in the scriptures. You know, God, people lay hands on for blessing. Um, in the New Testament era, they were laying hands, the apostles were laying on hands so that people would receive the Holy Spirit. In ordination, we still lay hands on individuals. Basic teaching about the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. These basic contours of the faith. Really, the same sort of things we confessed this morning in the Apostles' Creed. These are the things that all Christians, as they grow, this is a mark of your growth that you are able to articulate and explain these things. You know, it's a basic rule of learning. How many of you have ever said, I understand it, I just can't say it. I just can't explain it. I don't know how to explain it, but I understand it. You know what? If you can't explain it, you don't understand it. The basic rule of teaching and learning that unless you can recapitulate it or summarize it, maybe not perfectly, but unless you can repeat it, unless you can rearticulate it, you don't grasp it. That's why teachers give tests. Teachers are pushing all this information in, then they ask, well, what do we know about X? Don't ever, don't ever write on a test, well, I understand I just can't articulate it. You'll get an F. Because until you can articulate it, you don't understand it. And so he's challenging us. Just as at a basic level, brothers and sisters, are you growing in Jesus? Are we understanding the basics? It takes intentionality. It takes seriousness. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 5. You're not going to be skilled in the word of righteousness if you're living on milk. Solid food is for the mature. How do we become mature? Those who constantly practice distinguishing good from evil, those who are digging in to these words of God, to these basics. And so right here again, 
we just need to pause for a minute and challenge ourselves. What would the writer say about the congregation of Covenant Presbyterian Church? If he were looking out and he knew our congregation and knew each and every one of us, what would he say? Do we feel competent, do you individually feel competent to explain the basics of the faith to an outsider? Can you do that? Or is that something you still struggle with? I think this is worth, this is worth really pushing our hearts on, friends, because so many of us, so many of us are fluent in the details of the latest entertainment news. We are fluent in the details of the latest sports updates. Some of us followed the draft very carefully. Fluent in those details. Some of us are fluent in the latest movements of legislation and political things. And it's not necessarily wrong to be aware of those things. But what's problematic is when you are so fluent on these things, and yet you are an infant in the things of God. Which things are more important eternally? Are we content, are you content, to spend all your time learning about things that are ultimately trivial and living on milk, remaining in spiritual infancy? You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism has been around since 1647. And yet, how many of us have made the effort to learn it? I know some of you have. Some of your names are on the back, on that plaque. But most of our names are not on that plaque. Are we making the effort to learn the basics of the faith? And I know what some of you are thinking. I can't memorize. False. You can. I, I, remember, I remember this years ago being very, brought very vividly to me. We were living overseas, and I was teaching Sunday school, and one of the one of the people in my Sunday school, not one of my kids, just in case you're wondering, but another young man in my Sunday school, I can't memorize the Bible verses. I can't memorize the catechism. And he could recite from memory large portions of his favorite movie. He could tell me, he was, he was a Minecraft encyclopedia. Maybe that resonates with some of you. Don't tell me you can't learn. Don't tell me you can't, don't tell God, I mean, who are you kidding? You can't, you can't kid God. God knows we can learn the things that are important to us. And the problem with too many of us, too often, including me, I can be lazy as well, is that we just don't make the effort. We're content to live on milk. And you might say, well, pastor, it's not as fun. What's the big deal? What does the writer of Hebrews say? He says, number three, that remaining in spiritual infancy put the audience, put the readers in danger of irreversibly falling away. That's the danger that he is pointing out. Remember, this whole passage is framed by his concern for their souls. And look what he does. He puts, the beginning of chapter 6, 1 through 3, let's leave the elementary doctrine, let's go on to maturity, let's not just keep talking about the basics, let's, let's grow. He puts that right next, verses 1 through 3 of 6, right next to verses 4 through 6, 4 through 8 of chapter 6. And it's a little bit of a jarring transition. Let's go on. Let's leave the elementary doctrine. Let's go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance, etc., etc., etc. This we will do if God permits, verse 3. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away restore them again to repentance. Why does he put those things together side by side? 
he is communicating to us very clearly that if you remain in a state of spiritual infancy, you are putting yourself in danger of falling away in an irreversible sense. Remaining in spiritual infancy increases your danger of fatal apostasy. One of the commentators said it very well. One is either drawing nearer to God or falling away from God. There's no middle spot. And that brings us then, number four, kids, to consider the peril, the danger of prolonged infancy. Some of us may really be struggling at this point. I don't, I don't like this teaching. I'm not sure I like what the writer to Hebrews says. This is making me uncomfortable. Well, you've got to know something. Number four, he is simply repeating the warnings of Jesus. What he is saying here is essentially exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Some of the language, some of the phrases are, are, are so resonant. What did Jesus say? Just to quote the last couple verses from what we read. Jesus said, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? How does Jesus reply? Jesus doesn't reply and say, no, you didn't. They did. And Jesus yet will reply to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. It's not the only place where Jesus talks this way. Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the soils. As for what was sown on rocky ground, Matthew 13, 20 through 21. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. The recipients of the letter of the Hebrews were people who were suffering tribulation and persecution. And the writer is warning them that if you remain in a state of infancy, you are putting yourself in grave danger of falling away forever. Isn't that sobering? Isn't it sobering to think that even those who have had extraordinary spiritual experience, people who could have cast out demons in the name of Christ, could yet fall into irreparable ruin forever. Who's the prime example of this in Scripture, by the way? It starts with a J and rhymes with Judas Iscariot. Judas. Do you remember that in Mark chapter 3, he was commissioned as one of the apostles? He was among those given authority over unclean spirits. And yet we know from the Gospels later on that he is also one who was called the son of perdition and fell to his damnation. Perhaps there are people that you know, people that you've known from your experience as a Christian who started out, seemed to start out so well in the Christian life, seemed to really love Jesus, seemed to really be on fire for him, maybe even had extraordinary testimonies, and yet they did not endure and they fell away. Do you think that those people woke up one day and said, well, you know, today's the day I damn my soul? Absolutely not. But whether they realized it or not, they were not growing in Christ, and they hit the tipping point, and they fell away. And that's the sobering, sobering warning to us here, number five kids, that it is possible for our souls to pass permanently beyond any desire to repent. Now, we want to ask, how do we square this teaching with what we know about the promises of God? Even that promise that was our assurance of pardon. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Okay, so we have to start with what is clear. What is clear? It's clear that Jesus will save all who come to him 
and all who desire to be saved by Jesus. John 6, 37, we just used that. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. That's clear. Christ saves all who come and who desire him. It's also clear from Philippians 1, which we'll use in our benediction, that if God begins a good work in you, he will carry it to completion. So then what is implied? If we know those things are clear and yet we hear this warning from Hebrews, what must we conclude? What is the Bible logic involved here? The Bible logic here is two points. Number one, those who fall away in the way described in chapter 6 lose their desire to repent. They never desire to repent again. When they pass the tipping point, all desire to repent is gone forever. And if they do that, and if that happens, they thereby prove themselves, ultimately, despite their spiritual experience, they prove themselves to never have been reborn. They prove that God did not begin a good work in them. Now, there's a lot of mystery here, for sure. Even our confession of faith, which likes to be very precise as much as it can be, is a little more circumspect here when it says, these are people who were called by the ministry of the word. This is chapter 10 of the confession of faith. And they may have some common operations of the Spirit, yet they never truly came to Christ. We'd all like that to be fleshed out a little bit more and a little more precise, but the Scriptures don't get more precise. But the reality is, it's not the case that God could not forgive them, or God would not forgive them if they came. The reality is, they won't desire it. They will never come. Why not? Because... Verse 6, the end of verse 6 says, They are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And it's interesting here, you can see this in the English, but it's also very visible in the Greek, that these are ongoing, active, present attitudes of their heart. In other words, one of the commentators points out, these are people who under the tribulation and under the persecution, because they were not mature, they switched sides. They were part of the church's fellowship, but when things got hard, they left and then they joined with the crowd. And they started to make fun and mock the Christian faith. They were re-crucifying the Son of God to their own harm. I saw this very vividly and horrifyingly illustrated once. Something on the internet, I don't remember, some news article. But it was a sign of a, a group that was protesting something Christian. I don't remember when or where. Somebody was holding up the sign and said, If Jesus comes back, kill him again. And you want to back away even from the computer. It's that dark. But that's the attitude. The soul passes beyond the point of repentance. This is very challenging to us because we like to think, and our modern society sort of inculcates in us, sows in our hearts, this sort of mythology of, the, of unlimited second chances in life. You know, if this doesn't work out, maybe, maybe you can do something else. It's a land of opportunity, we're told, from the time we're very small. We don't like the idea that decisions could lock us in. Some of us have paranoia about making commitments because we're afraid of getting locked in. And that tells us that there is that deep knowledge, even below the mythology, that some things are permanent. And what the book of Hebrews is telling us is that's true of your soul. You can tip your soul beyond the desire to repent. And again, friend, I would just ask you, 
Have you known such people? I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I think some of you have. Some of you have known such people. They started out well, appeared to start well, and they fell away, and they've never come back. How do we avoid becoming a statistic like that? How do you and I avoid that? Very simple. Number six, a soul cannot live in infancy. There is only maturity for apostasy. Remember the context. This, this whole passage is framed by the, the writer's concern to move his readers from a state of sluggishness and infancy to maturity. That's where he goes on to say at the end of this passage. Let's go on. Let's show this verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. And in verse 9, he expresses confidence that they will. He says, we, in your case, we feel sure of better things. But you have to understand that your soul, your soul is like a child. What happens with an infant? Only two things can happen to a physical infant. They either grow or they die. And in the ancient world, when this letter was first written, that would have been even more vivid because the, the, the mortality rate was higher, infant mortality rate. But nobody looked at a baby in the ancient world in the first century and just said, let's just keep the baby forever. Let's just keep it this size, this small. What would happen to that child if they did? It would die. You must either grow or you must die. There are only two choices for children and for our souls. Spiritual infancy is a tipping point. And so if you want to avoid apostasy, you must, as the writer says at the beginning of chapter 6, leave the elementary doctrine and go on to maturity. Verse 3, if God permits. In other words, he's saying relying on the Lord. In other words, friends, it's time to move out of the basement of the Christian faith. It's time to live in the upstairs. It's time to go on to maturity. We love, we love teaching all the gospel here at this church. We love talking about the basics, too. You never want to throw them away. But they're basics for a reason. They are a foundation. And what do you do with foundations? You build stuff on them. You grow on to maturity so that you may withstand the schemes of the devil. It's time to get out of the basement. It's time to go on to maturity. Well, some of you are probably saying, Pastor, this sounds hard. I don't even know where to start. Where's the good news? There is good news. And it's a rule worth remembering as long as you live. If you're looking for the good news of the gospel in any passage, where do you look? You look to the acts, you look to the desires, you look to the power, and you look to the promises of Jesus. And those promises are here as well. As we seek to enter into the pursuit of maturity, what's the good news? Number seven. The good news is Jesus wants to cultivate you. He wants to cultivate us so that we are maximally fruitful. Right there, kind of in the middle, right after the really scary part, look at verses 7 and 8. This isn't a throwaway line. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. It's not, these are not random analogies that the writer to Hebrews was just trying to fill a page. He's illustrating both the danger and the promise. The danger of thorns and thistles. Those same words show up in the Greek translation in Genesis 3 when it's talking about the curse. But the promise is there too. Land that drinks the rain, verse 7, and produces a crop, receives what? The blessing of God. 
This is what Christ wants for us. The whole purpose of calling us out of sluggishness to earnestness, away from infancy to maturity, is because Jesus wants to fill you with the life and the power of heaven. He wants to make you more fruitful than you ever dared imagine. He wants you to mature so that you will experience all the goodness of God in a maximal way, both now and forever. Just imagine it. What could be greater? What could be a greater joy for any of us? No matter our jobs, no matter our school, no matter our relational status, what could be a greater joy than to feel the powers of the age to come? Not just at work in you, but producing something beautiful through you. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be such an encouragement even when your life is hard and things are really difficult to know, yes, but God is at work. And God is doing something glorious. That's the promise of this passage. That's why the writer is so earnest that we become more earnest. He wants to make you maximally fruitful, like a field that produces a crop. Jesus talked about this too, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. It's not just the super-Christians in history, brothers, sisters. It could be you. What's holding you back is not God. What's holding you back is your own infancy. What's holding us back is, frankly, we're honest, our own spiritual laziness, our preference for the things of this world, rather than our desire to go further up and further in. And the good news is, number eight, that despite our sluggishness, Jesus yet wants to fill us with better things. He wants to fill us with faith, hope, and love. And you see all three of those key Christian virtues are actually listed here in verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you've shown for his name. Verse 11, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Verse 12, That you may not be sluggish but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. These things are not just proof that God has given you a new life. They are part of the experience of the goodness of that new life, even now. These are one of the ways we grow up into full assurance, he says in verse 11. And this is so important. And let this be your encouragement to press on from this day forward. If you are living in a state of spiritual sluggishness or laziness, you're not just in danger of apostasy, although you are. You're also missing out. Even now, you are missing out on the life of heaven. You're already missing out of the best possible experience that any human being could ever have, to be filled with the life of Christ. And even when that happens, even serving the saints, verse 10, the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints, and the Greek says something like, and still serving them, even that, when you're filled with the life of Christ, isn't just work, it's tasting heaven now. Jesus wants you, brothers and sisters, Jesus wants you to inherit the promises, starting right now, starting today. The question is not whether God will do it. The question is, do you want this? It's not just about avoiding hell. You understand the gospel is not just about avoiding hell. It is about going further up and further into the life of heaven now. And if you are one of those who's really struggling to move beyond maturity, I have to tell you, my duty, to tell you that your soul is at a tipping point today. You will either decide to press on to maturity by God's grace, or you will tip toward apostasy. You're either moving nearer to God 
or moving farther away. Jesus wants and Jesus invites you to step toward maturity. And if you want that too, then all you have to tell him is, Lord, I struggle, but this is what I want. Pull me, draw me further up and further into your goodness. That's what earnestness is ultimately about. Number nine, not earning heaven for ourselves, but an eagerness to dive deeper into what Jesus has already earned for us. Amen. Let us pray. Our God, we thank you for your word. And yes, Lord, we thank you for the warnings of your word. We thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth and to say even the really hard and scary things, to get our attention. Oh, Lord, please work in us that earnestness, that desire, that eagerness to step toward heaven every day. Help us to see that even the best things of this world, even when they're good, are not as good as you. Help us to be those who can say with the psalmist, there is nothing on, I, on earth that I desire besides you. We don't have this power in ourselves. Grant us this power by your spirit and help us to rely on your promises so that we may inherit them. Lord, we ask in your name. Amen.